Nicholas Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Episode 4, 1880, A Sovereign's for a Run. It had been 10 years between the first Australian side to tour England in 1868 and the second, which occurred in 1878, but only two for the following tour, which took place in 1880. Harry Boyle was the chief organiser and was initially meant to take over as Australian captain from Dave Gregory, but on the ship over the players voted Billy Murdoch, who was considered a much more friendly and good-humoured man as their leader. Murdoch would also take over from Charles Bannerman, who had accepted a job as coach of the Melbourne Cricket Club and didn't make the tour, as the great Australian batsman. The squad was a mix of veterans of the previous tour, including Murdoch, Boyle, Fred Spofforth, Alec Bannerman and Jack Blackham, and new players. Some of these, such as Percy McDonnell, Joey Palmer, George Bonner and backup keeper Affy Jarvis, would go on to be fixtures of Australian sides for the next decade. The other four, Tom Groob, Jim Slight, George Alexander and William Moore, would have short test careers, with only Alexander representing Australia again in test cricket. Again, James Lee White acted as the Australian's agent to organise matches. However, due to the tour not being confirmed until April, much later than the 1878 tour had been, most of the major county sides had planned their fixtures for the year, leaving little space for matches against the Australians. Furthermore, such was the hostility among the cricketing hierarchy that they struggled to get any decent fixtures. Harris wrote, They asked no one's goodwill in the matter, and it was felt that this was a discourteous way of bursting in on our arrangements, and the result was they played scarcely any counties and were not generally recognised. We felt we had to make a protest against two frequent visits. Disaffection due to the fallout of the riots during the Sydney match the previous year also played a part. They were particularly shunned in London, where the MCC only tried to arrange a game at late notice at the prompting of WG Grace, but the Australians were unable to rearrange their schedule to fit the match in, meaning there would be no Lords follow-up to the famous match from that 1878 tour. In total, the 1880 side would only end up playing nine games which would be considered to be first class, as well as 45 matches against lesser opposition. The first major fixer would be against Derbyshire. The Australians only made 129 in the first innings, but the bowling of Spotheth and Palmer, who took five wickets apiece, led to the hosts being dismissed for 45. Following on, they made 125, with Spotheth taking a further eight wickets to finish with 13 for the match. The Australians chased the 42 remaining with only two wickets down. A month later, Yorkshire were defeated by five wickets, with Spotheth taking 11 and Palmer 9. Rain ruined the return match against Yorkshire in July, but not before Spotheth and Palmer again took five wickets in the first innings. The next first-class match was against Gloucestershire, the team of WG Grace. Along with Grace, the Gloucestershire side also included Billy Midwinter, who had played in the inaugural test for Australia and then was infamously kidnapped by WG during the 1878 tour. The Australians traded on the first innings by 81 runs, but 79 from Percy McDonald anchored the Australians' second innings, leading to a target of 165, which was too great for the home side. Swafford taking seven to go with four in the first innings, whilst Palmer also managed another eight for the match. The excellent performances of the Australians, they would only lose two of the nine first-class matches for the tour, led to more calls for a representative England side to be pitted against them. Finally, in late July, Surrey agreed to host such a match in September. Their secretary, Charles Adcock, spent the next month attempting to convince the highest-profile English players to participate in the match. The key was Lord Harris. With the support of a motivated WG Grace, Harris was convinced to lead the side. He then lent his considerable influence to encouraging participation. It was not an easy process, with Harris later stating he had to bring a lot of pressure on several prominent amateurs to play. The English side was considered strong. WG Grace was the obvious star of the side and would be making his test debut. He was joined by two of his brothers, Edward and Fred. Both had strong first-class records for the time and had been on previous tours of Australia, Edward travelling with the 1863-64 side, whilst Fred had joined his brother on the 73-74 tour. 
They also shared the family profession, with Edward being a surgeon and Fred completing his doctor training. Other players making their test debut included Alan Steele, who was considered the second best batsman in England, and the Nottinghamshire left armour Fred Morley. Lord Harris was also joined by Bunny Lucas, who had played on the previous tour of Australia. Alfred Shaw, who had played in the inaugural test, also agreed to play. However, Tom Emmett, George Ulyer, and Monkey Hornby, who had also been on the tour with Harris, refused to participate, still feeling disgruntled regarding the Sydney riot during the New South Wales match. The Australians had suffered a major setback three weeks before the game. Against the Scarborough side of 18 men, they had suffered their first loss of the tour. More importantly, during the match, Spotheth had suffered a broken finger at the hands of a Scarborough bowler, who was a known chucker. This injury would cause him to miss the remaining games on the tour, including the test match. To this stage, Spotheth was responsible for over half the wickets the Australians had taken in first-class games to this point of the tour, so it was a substantial loss. Afi Jarvis, the backup wicketkeeper, was the other player left out of the side as the teams met at the Oval in Surrey for what would later be considered the first test match in England. England won the choss and chose to bat in front of 21,000 spectators. WG opened with his brother Edward. The absence of Spotheth meant that Boyle opened the bowling with Palmer. This absence was keenly felt and seemed to have an impact on Palmer as well who was much less incisive than he had been during the previous matches on the tour. Coupled with a true pitch and a fast outfield, the English progressed the score rapidly. Neither of the opening bowlers could penetrate the English defences, so they were replaced with Alexander and Bannerman. The score would progress to 91 before the first wicket was taken, with Edward Grace falling for 36 off the bowling of Bannerman. WG would be joined by Bunny Lucas. This would be the dominant partnership of the innings. Punishing the Australian bowling, the two put on 120 until Lucas was dismissed for 55. Grace by this stage had brought up the first century by an English batsman and had done so without giving the Australians a chance. The good doctor was living up to his reputation. The day continued to progress well for the English. Grace put on 58 with Barnes for the third wicket. Following Barnes' dismissal, Grace was joined by Lord Harris and proceeded to bring up his 150 before finally being dismissed, bowled by Palmer for 152. He did 12 boundaries and batted for just over four hours in doing so. Harris would also bring up a 50 and put on a decent partnership with Penn and Steele before being dismissed by Alexander. A late flurry of wickets, including Fred Grace for a duck, left the English at 8 for 410 at the close of play. Rain had fallen overnight and the pitch, pitches were uncovered for the duration of the test for the most part until the 1950s, became more difficult for batting. Day 2 saw a similar crowd to the first witness the English innings being wrapped up quickly for 420, the highest score in a test match so far. Moore and Bannerman had ended with three wickets each. The Australians had opened with Bannerman and the captain Murdoch. Bannerman dominated the opening partnership of 28 when Murdoch was caught off the bowling of Steele for a duck. Wickets would continue to fall steadily through the innings, with no partnership exceeding the amount scored by the opening stand. The highlight of the innings came when George Bonner, a noted big hitter, had skied a ball out towards the boundary. Fred Grace, running around the boundary line, managed to complete a catch which was referred to at the time as the most famous deep field catch in history. The ball had travelled so high that the batsmen had time to run two and were halfway through their third before the catch was completed. Later measurements put the hit at over 100 metres. The Australians' innings ended mid-afternoon with a total of 149. Some late hitting from Harry Boyle had led him to top score with 36 not out. Left-arm fast bowler Fred Morley had taken five wickets for the home side. With a lead of 271, the English asked the Australians to follow on. Opening with the two highest scorers from the first innings, Boyle and Bannerman, the Australians lost their first wicket when Bannerman was out for eight. This brought to the crease Murdoch, who was on a pair, but was about to play one of the great test innings. William Lloyd Murdoch was born on the 18th of October 1854 in Sandhurst, Victoria. His family moved to New South Wales soon after, and it was here that Murdoch would establish himself as one of the premier batsmen in the country. 
Whilst his law career did not progress as he expected, with the firm he set up with his brother going bankrupt in 1877, he excelled as a cricketer. His batting style was heavily focused on offside play, with powerful drives and cuts forming the basis of most of his big scores. He would also perfect the dog shot, a shot where he would lift his front leg to glance the ball before it reached the rear leg. Such was his standing that he would go on to replace Dave Gregory as both the New South Wales and Australian captain. Following the 1880 tour, he would go on to score the first triple century in Australian first-class cricket in 1881-82 against Victoria, and only his second overall after W.G. Grace. He also acted as New South Wales wicketkeeper early in his career, where he also performed well. It was Blackham being preferred to him as keeper in the first test that made Spofford withdraw in protest. As Blackham proved his skill, Murdoch focused less on his keeping, which allowed him to take his batting to new heights. The first the English would see of this prowess would be in this coming innings. Soon after Murdoch arrived at the crease, two more wickets fell, with Boyle being run out and Groove being dismissed for a golden duck by Morley. This brought Percy MacDonald to the crease. The current and future Australian captains then began to develop a partnership. MacDonald was the more fluent of the two, scoring 43 in a stand of 83 before he was dismissed with the score being 97. Slight recorded the second golden duck of the innings, bringing Black into the crease. During this partnership, Murdoch brought up his 50 of 113 balls with four boundaries. By this stage, the pitch had improved from the morning and the batsmen began to score at a quicker pace. In particular, Murdoch was providing no chances and the English had to make wider use of their bowling stocks than they had in the first innings. Blackham was dismissed for 19 with the score on 143, leading to Bonner joining Murdoch. The two were still at the crease by the end of the day with a score on 170 for 6, still trailing by 101. Murdoch was on 79, with him still at the crease, there was a small chance that the Australians would be able to post a defendable total. Early on the next day, Steele took two quick wickets, with Bonner falling for 16, and then catching Palmer off his own bowling for four. With the score at 8 for 187, it looked likely that the match would end soon. However, Murdoch found able support from the final two batsmen with two partnerships that would take the Australians into the lead. 52 was put on with Alexander, who scored 33 of those. During this partnership, Murdoch suffered an injury. He had to rest a few minutes before batting on, bringing up his 100 shortly after. This was his first in first-class cricket and drew an enthusiastic round of applause from the 3,000 in attendance. At the fall of Alexander, the Australians were still 32 runs behind. The final pair of Murdoch and William Moore would put on 88, Moore contributing 34 of these and ensuring that the English would have to bat again. Murdoch was undefeated on 153. He had faced 358 balls and hit 17 boundaries without providing the fielding side a chance. He outscored Grace's effort from the first innings by one. Most pleasing for him, he won the bet he'd made with the doctor before the game about who would get the highest score. He would wear the sovereign that was the prize for the bet around his neck for the rest of his life. The target was only 57, and it was expected that the English would polish them off without much trouble. W.G. Grace, who was tired from bowling 28 overs in the previous innings, was dropped down the order. The English opened with his brother Fred and the keeper Littleton. Fred completed the first pair in Test cricket history when he was bowled by Palmer. Palmer then had the next batsman Lucas for 2, and when Littleton was dismissed by the same bowler for 13, the score was 3 for 22. The other opening bowler, Boyle, soon got into the act by dismissing Edward Barnes and Edward Grace with a score on 31, leaving England 5 down with 26 still to get. The hopes of a famous Australian victory had increased as W.G. Grace joined the not-out batsman Frank Penn at the crease. Grace's steadying presence with Penn would see the English home though without any more wickets lost, however. Despite the loss, the Australians were warmly applauded and received a standing ovation from the crowd. Much of the damage from the Sydney riot had been repaired, and the relations between the two cricketing nations resumed their closeness after the match. Murdoch received a bat from the host cricket club in recognition of his achievement. The Australians also received a half share of the gate takings, which amounted to £1,400, which went a ways to alleviating the financial issues the tour had had up to that point. A return match was proposed, but would not end up being played. 
The Australians tour continued until the end of September, including another four first-class games. The Australians winning one and losing one of these. Spotha's absence for the rest of the tour limited the Australians' ability to dismiss sides, and him not being available for the test was seen as a crucial reason why the Australians had lost, a view which would be supported by his achievements in the next test played in England in 1882. Neither Edward or Fred Grace would play another test match. Edward would continue to play for Gloucestershire until 1894. Fred, sadly, would be dead within two weeks of the conclusion of the match. He had travelled to another match on the completion of the test in the rain. Falling asleep on a damp mattress, he contracted pneumonia and soon after passed away. WG, though, would continue to play test cricket, but only to Australia once more in 1891-92. The first test match on English soil was overall seen as a success and would reinforce the willingness of English authorities to accommodate those tours in the future, paving the way for more test cricket and the development of the oldest and most storied rivalry in the sport, the Ashes. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.